Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week we're doing something a little different and you're going to get saltier with the co-host this week. Yeah, um, you know, we've interviewed a lot of really interesting people on this podcast, but I feel like we haven't really spoken much to each other and we're awesome and I think we should speak a little bit more to each other. So once in a while, I think we just have a much more prolonged discussion about us and what we think about politics, what makes us salty, but also go into detail about some of the events of the week. So with all that, Emily, I will turn it over to you. All right. Well, this week was an interesting week for technology. And by that, I mean, when the Google CEO testified to Congress, he had a lot of great moments. Well, we saw a lot of great moments with lawmakers revealing their complete and total ignorance about technology. So as your job as you know, consulting or a strategist, how would you kind of consult want some of these judiciary lawmakers to not look like complete noobs? Well, first of all, um, the average age of members of the House and Senate is a little older than millennials. So I don't know that they, I remember, um, I think it was a congressman or a senator from Alaska, I can't remember which one, that referred to the internet as the interwebs. So um, a series of tubes that connect things. So um, first and foremost, I think a lot of these people just don't have much experience with the internet. I, I, they might use email, maybe. They might text, maybe. But they certainly don't know much about coding or much about how the internet works. But by the way, neither do I, so I'm not pretending that I'm an expert at this. But it seems to me like maybe they should at least get some staff who could help them. And the staff, I'm sure, does help them. But once you're sitting in a committee room and having worked in the Senate, I know this well, um, you sit behind the senator, you can slip them a note, or a congressman and slip them a note, but you certainly can't ask the question for them. And so you saw this when Mark Zuckerberg was testifying a few months ago on Facebook, and, and they let him get away with murder, not because they intended to let him get away with murder, but because they just didn't know how to debate something that he was so much more well-versed in than they were. And so I think that's partially part of the problem. We just are dealing with people who are not in the same um, space either generationally or um, technologically. All right. What would you do post, for example, the Steve King moment when he held up his iPhone and, you know, the Google CEO said Google and Apple are different companies? What is the <laughs> kind of cleanup you do after that? Or do you do any, Kim? Well, if I work for Steve King, I'd be doing a lot more cleanup <laughs> than just on that. Steve King, I feel, needs somebody to go after him with what you use in a circus elephant. Um <laughs> clean up what comes out of the back of them. But um, uh, look, I, I don't know that you can clean that up, but if you're interviewing the CEO of a company, you at least have to know what the company does, and you at least have to know that they don't manufacture iPhones or iPads if they're at Google um, any more than you would ask the guys um, at, at Tim Cook at Apple about Google's products or Mark Zuckerberg about Apple's products. Um, it's just, it, it kind of, it stands to reason that at least you should be prepared. You know, a lot of these, not all, I shouldn't castigate them, but I think a lot of these longtime elected officials kind of go in and wing it. Like, they're not that interested. The reality is, I don't think Steve King, I shouldn't speak for him, but I don't know that a lot of these people on these committees are interested in this topic. It's a confusing topic to them. It's not a topic that they understand. Um, and it's not a topic that they're particularly interested in understanding. But uh, it strikes me that at least you have to have people... Um, in the real world, on the Hill, who know what they're talking about when it comes to this, and, and certainly uh, Congressman King does not know what, it come, what he's talking about when it comes to this, and I hasten to add a lot of other issues that he talks about on a daily basis. 
I would absolutely agree to that. Now kind of moving on to clapbacks, really. And this has to do with the Pelosi-Schumer-Trump showdown at the White House. Uh, First, I would like to note Pelosi's savage clapback to Trump, who said... Trump, who said she's in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now, and then she bit back at him, quote, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just want a big victory. Please respond. I mean, it's so funny because you look at social media and every Trump accolade out there is like, he totally owned her. He totally owned her. Under what scenario is he totally owning her? I mean, she... I tweeted this image, I don't know how many people watch Mad Men, but there's this very famous iconic scene in Mad Men where Peggy Olsen, who's this woman that started out as a secretary in, in, in 1960 in this, um, in this internet, sorry, in this ad agency, by the end of the series is literally walking out with her boxes in her hands and a cigarette in her mouth and sunglasses on and she's just kind of strolling, swaggering down the hallway because she knows that she's coming to her own. And that's really Nancy Pelosi. I mean, Nancy Pelosi for all that she sometimes is an artful when she speaks publicly, for all that she's not necessarily the greatest messenger um, on television for Democrats, she knows how to play the game, and she knows how to tweak people, and she's been around a really long time. I mean, before she was Nancy Pelosi, she was Nancy D'Alessandro. Her father was a very long-time powerful mayor of Baltimore. She was literally born to do this, and some people who are born to do this don't do well, but she happens to have excelled at it, and... uh, she had him. I mean, she just owned him, and that's not a partisan analysis. She she just did. I mean, he's he's spewing information about the wall. She's saying we're giving you money for the wall. He's saying why don't you pass it? She's saying why doesn't the Republican House pass it? You guys are in charge of everything now. Pass it, pass it. Um, he mansplains the legislative process to her, which is hilarious. Um, if you recall, he basically said, well, you know, you need sixty votes in the Senate to get anything done. Um, well, why didn't the House just pass it first and then? punt it over to the Senate. What's the House afraid afraid of? Why don't the Republicans in the House pass legislation to fund the wall? Um, suddenly Trump said, I want the shutdown. If I don't get my wall funding, I'm going to shut down the government. We've heard this before. This is like the third or fourth or fifth time that he's threatened to shut down the government um, for the wall. And lo and behold, the government has not been shut down for the wall. The government will not be shut down for the wall. He's not getting his wall. Um, which only forced him to do what I thought was the most interesting mental contortion of the week, which is to say that because they renegotiated NAFTA to make it fundamentally, it's, you know, meet the new NAFTA, same as the old NAFTA, they just gave it a different name, kind of like Kentucky Fried Chicken is now known as KFC, but it's the same product. Um, He's now saying because we renegotiated NAFTA, Mexico is going to be paying for the wall because Mexico is going to be giving us so much more money. It's just a blatant lie. Um, and I wish more people would call it for what it is because it is a blatant lie. But, um, but again, the ability for him to tweet this nonsense out and, and fine, he's not all there, but for people, and a lot of people who I, I genuinely like um, who are supporters of his to agree with him on this um, without looking at the underlying facts, without thinking remotely about what he's saying, that to me is more troubling because that just says to me, again, it bears repeating, he said that if he shot somebody in Fifth Avenue, um, he his supporters would stand by him and he's shooting the truth on Fifth Avenue, certainly on a daily basis or in Constitution Avenue or in Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue and, uh, and they're, you know, they're standing by him no matter what he says, well, um, including this, <laughs> this ridiculous um, assertion about these campaign finance violations, which we can get into. 
Um, well, just back to the meeting, we have to know Mike Pence's ma- major role in it, that he looked like he just got out of the DeLorean and was figuring out what year he was in. <laughs> Do you think Mike Pence is sitting here thinking, let me look around the Oval Office, there's a good chance this guy's going to get impeached, let me think about the curtains that Mother and I can can, <gasps> can put in here, or do you think Mike Pence is sitting there thinking, God, I sold my soul for political ambition because I'm Mike Pence, and while I don't agree with Mike Pence on anything, he's been around the block once or twice, and he knows how full of BS um, Donald Trump is on this issue. Um, I think he was trying to make himself disappear. I, I would too, you know, I, we've all been in that situation mainly when we're teenagers, when our parents are saying something that we're totally mortified about and we're pretending we're not hearing them. Um, it's hard to do when you're the vice president of the United States, but who in Donald Trump's orbit? I, I, I can't think of anybody, not Jared Kushner, not Ivanka Trump, certainly not Mike Pence, um, who, while not, and certainly not Kellyanne Conway, whom I've known a long time, and while I haven't spoken to her since she, she got the job in the White House, I've always known her to be a very bright woman. Um, you know, these people all say the right thing publicly, but can you imagine just cringing internally every day, multiple times a day, what comes out of Donald Trump's mouth? Um, it's just abysmal. And again, I've worked for a lot of politicians, and I'm sure that once or twice they've said things that have made me cringe, but not to this level and not to the point where I'm thinking, what life decision got me to this place and is it worth it? What do you think potential new chief of staff, Jared Kushner, how do you think he would react to this? I mean, Jared Kushner is so interesting to me because I think that's what Trump kind of wanted all along. You know, as the walls close in, this always happens in every Godfather movie too, you know, like you get rid of Tom Hagen and you suddenly start relying on Michael Corleone. I'm not suggesting they're all mobsters, but I'm suggesting that when the walls are closing in, and when you've got so many investigations and so many people um, looking at you and so many people poking at you, who do you go to? I mean, you can you go to your family, you rely on your family. And I mean, he just, he's getting turned down. First, Nick Ayers turned him down um, after it was all but a done deal to be chief of staff. And Nick Ayers let it hang out there for a long time that he was going to be chief of staff. He let the speculation run a really long time. And then belatedly said, yeah, sorry, not interested. So well, what's the what's the political motivation behind that? The kind of waiting and being um, like, no. You know, it makes you look good, it makes you look powerful. Um, and then all of a sudden you say, No, I'm really, you know, I would have been the guy, but it's my decision not to do it. I, I'm sure Nick Ayers had both personal and professional reasons not to do it. Um, and then you have Chris Christie coming out this week and saying, I don't want it, I'm not interested in it. Um and I'm not sure if he really is not interested in it or whether he knew he wasn't going to get it. And so since he's been passed over so often for so many jobs, um, whether it was better for him to say, you know, I'm not, you're not dumping me. I'm the one that's dumping you. Um, but the reality is I, I don't know how many competent people want to be the chief of staff in this, in this administration. And so Jared, by virtue of inexperience and by virtue of being married into the family, uh, I think almost has no choice. Um, It'll certainly be good for business for him to be the chief of staff to the president. What's interesting is the chief of staff needs to have, you know, top, top, top security clearance. Right. How um, is that going to work? And how is that going to work? Um, also, Jared Kushner may or may not be under federal investigation. We don't know. How's that going to work? Um, if nothing else, Jared Kushner has a criminal defense attorney, Abby Lowell, um, on the payroll. So I'm not sure how that works um, in being able to do the job of chief of staff while at the same time having to deal with a criminal defense investigation um, or a criminal investigation. So 
I don't know, but I mean, nothing about this administration makes sense. And it may be Jared Kushner for all we know. I mean, maybe that's a trial balloon that they shot up, but at the end of the day, he may be the only one left standing. Who, who knows? If Christie doesn't want it, um, if Kelly basically walked out the door, um, if Nick Ayers turned it down, I, I don't know. I mean, who, who does he turn to, and, and how does that happen? I don't know. It will be f- interesting to comment on as well. Um, so kind of switching gears a little bit, uh, recently actress Sandra Locke died at 74 years old, and her death is being defined by her relationship with actor Clint Eastwood. She was in a lot of movies in the Dirty Harry movies with him, and really all of the headlines are Clint Eastwood's ex in star in six of his movies dies. And I, it's just something that is kind of frustrating to me because just even in writing obituaries and stuff like that, in the headline, just defining a whole person's life based on their relationship with somebody is very frustrating. Uh, it is, you know, <laughs> it's been so frustrating to women for so long that you had Queen Elizabeth I refusing to get married because she didn't want to be defined by being somebody's wife. Um, and uh, consistently, it happens. I mean, um, it, it, it happens so often that it's that it's incredibly annoying to me. And I, I worked, when we had first broached this subject, I worked um, a long time ago, 20 I guess five years ago now, for the Labor Party in London. And it was right in 1993 when Hillary Clinton was just taking up um, health care reform on behalf of the White House. And I remember um, I was in a very low-level, not even a staffer, I was an intern, um, full-time intern there. But my boss took me for lunch to the House of Lords, which I thought was really cool. And uh, I ended up having lunch with a couple of, um, they're called peers, baronesses, um, women peers, and they were talking about Hillary Clinton, how much they loved Hillary Clinton. Isn't she great? And, um, and I said, yeah, you know, I'm not sure about her being uh, in charge of health care reform. And they said, why? And I said, well, I mean, what are her qualifications? They said, well, she's very smart. I said, I'm sure she is very smart, but she's not the expert on this issue. I mean, surely there are people who are better, better, better experts on this issue. And... Um, she's basically there because she's the first lady and she's married to the president. And that's why she's in charge of healthcare reform. And they said, well, yeah, but what's wrong with that? And I said, well, you know, I mean, I would think that somebody should be there not because they're married to somebody. And then I kind of looked around and I thought, oh my God, I'm just in the house of Lords. Like you people are only here clearly <laughs> because of the lucky sperm club or you married well, or I mean, some of these actually became, um, rose to the peerage because of their accomplishments. But I mean, historically, the House of Lords has been there. Born into it. Born into the manor, right? So it's the same kind of situation here, and it's not a partisan thing. I mean, I think that about Hillary Clinton all the time. I mean, a woman who was incredibly accomplished in her own right, but got to where she got in large part because of whom she married and and had to own his sins um, throughout the campaign. I mean, the fact that, you know, she, she had to shoulder the blame for the way her husband treated her by cheating on her, I think is the most um, glaring example. Um, more and more, I think it's it's just Sandra. But this this example, Sandra Locke, is is a very good one. I mean, this is an accomplished actress, and yet she's Clint Eastwood's ex. Um, and I wonder if Dan Keaton would ever be Woody Allen's ex when she passes away, or you know, or whoever else she dated in Hollywood. It's constant, and it's kind of it's it's kind of perennial. It just happens all the time, and women 
are always misses somebody or somebody's ex. I wonder how often you have men who died who are right. somebody's ex. I'm, I'm trying hard to remember an instance. Maybe people can tweet us about it and, and let me know. I'm sure there are examples of this. But when was the last time you had a man die and somebody said, oh, he was so married to so-and-so and that's his claim to fame? I mean, when Brad Pitt dies, are people going to say he was Angelina Jolie's ex? Right. Um, no, but here's Jennifer Aniston, who's apparently still sitting here crying, you know, tears over Brad Pitt dumping her, even though it sounds to me like she moved on fairly quickly. But this is what we all think about. Oh, poor Jen, poor Jennifer Aniston. This consistent concept of women either being dumped or women marrying somebody for fame or fortune. Um, it's just it's just endemic to the way we treat women in the society. And it's incredibly frustrating to me. This is just one most recent example of that. I know, and what's also frustrating is even writing headlines and making videos at work for it. It's like, well, you want to include Clint Eastwood for SEO purposes, and it's like... SEO, search engine optimization, in case people don't don't know. Right, and, um, but still, it still just frustrates me. I want that to be the third paragraph in it, like, by the way, she did date this guy, and they did make great movies together, but it's just... Yeah, you know... (laughs) It's, it's very interesting. Um, it's, it's sad when you define people based on their, an episode in their life that's not of their own making. And, and you right. know, I'll use myself as an example. Um, randomly this week, um, I, somebody sent me a clip, Emily, and then I sent it to you. And both of us had the same reaction. We're like, huh, where's this coming from? That they're making a movie about, about oh my gosh. The, the, the Fox News um, Roger Ailes saga. And, um, and, it's a Nicole Kidman movie. I think she's playing Gretchen Carlson. And then there's a Charlize Theron, you know, starring role in it. And she's playing Megyn Kelly. And that's all fine. Um, and then randomly, um, I, I got this. I mean, when I say <laughs> the randomly, I'm the, like, text, the text from you, I just got it. And I was around people and I'm like, Wait. I know there are words on it that I, we probably could use on this podcast, but I'd rather not. But both of us were like, what? But anyway, some random, some, some actress um, who I'm sure is lovely. I actually saw her in the help um, a long time ago. And I'm Anna O'Reilly is, is playing me, which is, bizarre but all I kept thinking about is okay so I've had a 25-year career and a lot of it was spent at Fox um, but most of it was spent doing something completely unrelated which is working as a political consultant as a, as a crisis communications consultant um, for corporations and suddenly um, this very 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 minor episode in my life is gonna uh, that's what's being made into a movie I mean the movie's not clearly about me but um but that episode of my life is what people are focusing on. And again, it's, it's more to your point about um, random episodes of your life that are, that, that are focused on that really are not the focus of your personal life. And in that case, um, going back to Sandra Locke, I mean, I'm sure the, the raison d'etre of her life professionally was not that she was Clint Eastwood's ex. Right. It was she was an actress. And that's what she did for a living. And that's what she should have been known for um, because she did a lot of good work. And um, unfortunately, because of the need for, as you said, for SEO um, and, and the need for people to get clicks and, and for salacious stuff, women, more often than men, but women are really tagged with the most um, salacious part of their personal or professional lives rather than what they've worked towards um, their entire career. She'd spent her entire career being an actress. That's not what we were hearing about. We're hearing that she was somebody's ex. Um, and so that's, that, that I find really annoying, especially this week in light of what we just discussed. Definitely more to come as that, right. uh, 
transpired. Anyway, uh, while still speaking of iniquity, uh, recently we saw that frat president uh, at Baylor University, Jacob Anderson, got away with a plea deal after apparently raping a student. Uh, It's pretty much this whole iniquity of white males getting this kind of sentence while someone like Santoya Brown gets locked away and fights for her clemency. Well, um, I mean, where where to begin? First of all, disparity in sentencing and racial disparities in sentencing continue to be ridiculous, which is why, um, we'll get to this later, but why, especially marijuana legalization to me, um, is a prime example of that. I mean, think about the kids that get locked up for possession of pot. It's usually, unfortunately, statistically, the, um, poor black kid in the inner city, not the rich preppy kid in the suburbs um, whose whose parents have the money to get a good lawyer to to get them off for having a, uh, you know, dime bag. (laughs) Right. This is how much I I don't know. This is how much I know about pot. I don't know what the quantity, is it a dime bag, whatever the quantities are of of marijuana possession. But um, so um, this is another really good example. And Baylor, you know, was a good Christian school down in Texas. And and that's really unchristian behavior, this guy. Engaged in. Right, and the evidence against him, so pretty much his victim claimed that at a frat party in 2016, he led her out back where she lost consciousness. He raped and he raped her and choked her. And then she woke up, she was alone, lying face down and gagging on her own vomit. And then later, a sexual assault nurse verified the rape. So, I mean, this wasn't, this had evidence. Yeah, um, certainly. Um, I think we don't, you know, more and more, I think, especially when it comes to sexual assault, you have people who just legitimately don't, um, don't, uh, take women as seriously as they should when it comes to this kind of situation. I mean, I get that you're innocent until proven guilty. I completely agree with that notion. I'm a very strong believer in that notion, but it's very rare that, um, you don't take something to a grand jury when something like this happens, but very often um, it doesn't get taken to a grand jury even when there's physical evidence, um, even when there's really no reason to take it to a grand jury. Meanwhile, the the other case that you mentioned is a woman who killed her attacker. I mean, this guy was about to rape her and she was under 18, I believe, right? Right, Uh, she was forced into prostitution and still underage when this... Right, and so she killed her, her, the man that was trying to have sex with her and she just got the book thrown at her and she deserves clemency from the governor. Um, but how a judge could sentence her to that, um, when it was all but self-defense, it makes no sense to me. I mean, where is it just where a rapist gets off with a slap on the wrist, but the victim is the one who for fighting back um, ends up in prison. And, and interestingly, I mean, you have, you know, these are the same people that talk about stand your ground laws. And if somebody comes into your house and you feel threatened, you get the right to sue them. Okay. Well, this woman was threatened. I mean, how much she was underage, she was getting raped. She killed the guy. How much more of a threat could it be? It's, it's a good guy with a gun up until I think the person's a minority. Yeah. But, or but, but, but yeah, but if it's a black woman with, with, nothing but um, self-defense, then suddenly she's, you know, this, this horrible human being that needs to be locked up from society. Um, we have a long way to go in this country um, when it comes to racial disparity in the justice system. And I remember saying this sent out numbered a couple of years ago, and it really got everybody on my panel kind of upset with me. But I said at the time, my, my little blonde son is just not going to come under the same kind of scrutiny by cops 
on the streets of New York as if he were an African-American boy. And everybody kind of said, how dare you? And that's not true. And it is true. It's just absolutely true. You know, I, I got um, <laughs> a couple years ago, I was walking to Fox actually to do Megyn Kelly's show and it was dark at night and I was walking past Lincoln Center, which if everybody knows New York, anybody who knows New York knows is a, is a very safe neighborhood. Um, and these African-American kids came up behind me and there was maybe five or six of them and grabbed my iPhone out of my hand and, and ran off, stole my phone. Um, so the security guard at Lincoln Center saw them, started running, chasing after them. I started chasing after them, although when you're wearing heels, <laughs> as, as you would a fox, it's a little hard to do. And, um, and uh, the cops showed up, and the cops were wonderful, but the cops literally started pulling over every African-American kid um, that they saw. They're like, is that him? Is that him? Is that her? Is that the person? Is that the person? And I said, I, I can't. I can't speak to that. I, I don't know. Um, and ultimately, they never caught them because I, I didn't know what they looked like and couldn't really remember what they looked like. But what was interesting to me is I'm wondering if, if it was a bunch of white kids, whether they start grabbing a bunch of white kids off of Broadway and 66th Street and, and saying, is that him? Is that her? Oh, is that him? Is that her? Right. I, I doubt it. No. And then also, I think the white kids that they do grab will get, as I would see as many of my friends probably would, would get self you know, entitled and just be like, are you, are you talking to me? Do, do you have a right to do that? Whereas you would never see, I think in most cases, a black person to kind of talk back to. A well, it's funny because, like because one, because one of these kids actually did start talking back to the cops and he's like, yo, you're not treating me well, man. Like stop, you know, and I'm just looking at this kid. I'm thinking, just stop, just stop for your own sake. Just stop. Right. Cause you can see the cops are just like, itch, you know, they're just, right. and, um, and again, I don't want to say that the cops here were doing any, I mean, the cops were wonderful to me. They actually gave me a ride to Fox. They waited for me and gave me a ride home afterwards. I mean, it was just completely above and beyond um, what you could expect. I mean, it was, they were wonderful. But I, I have to say, of course, because if you were starting to pull those little white, you know, white kids off the street, um, you know, mom and dad would get involved very quickly, especially in that neighborhood. It's a, it's a fairly affluent neighborhood. And then suddenly it, you just wouldn't do it. It's just it's cultural. It's endemic. Um, I'm not suggesting at all that these cops are racist. They're not. Um, but I just think generally we have such a predisposition in this country to, to treat people unfairly under the law. And I can only imagine the tweets we're going to get and the comments we're going to get based on this particular conversation. But it, I'm telling you, it's just true. And I say that as somebody, again, who's the mother of a little blonde kid who's certainly not ever going to get looked at with suspicion in the same way he'd be looked at if he were an African-American um, and that's sad. No, and, and just one final thing to add to that, but it's it's really just, I think, you know, like your son and, and my brother, it's something that they will probably not have to think about in the way even you and I think about walking down the street because when it's dark out, I think I definitely pick different roads to go down. Mm-hmm. Well, more, but whereas when you're a guy, you don't really have to think about and be so aware of your body and where you are as much. And those are just little things that just weigh on you that I don't think they're going to, that they even have to really get weighed down by. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Bill de Blasio, who's the mayor of New York, um, who I don't particularly like um, at all, but he was right about this, and he got a, such a raft of, of nonsense about it when he said it, but he, he is, um, he's, he's Caucasian, and he's married to Shirley McRae, who's African-American, and they have two children, and obviously the kids are biracial, and his son Dante um, had this big afro and and looks, you know, I would say looks more African-American than white. And what Bill de Blasio said was that he had had to have the conversation with Dante, his son, at one point about, hey, you know, you got to be careful because mm-hmm. of what you look like and just be careful. And, you know, you might be looked at with suspicion. 
Right. And he got so much aggravation for it. People were like, how dare you? How dare you say that? How dare you imply that there's any kind of racism in the greatest city in the world? And the reality is he was absolutely right. The conversations that I will have with my son or your mother had with your brother are not anywhere near the kind of conversations that people will have with their African-American sons um, because it's sadly not necessary for white kids um, to be wary of um, being looked at askance. I mean, look at this case of this woman. She's African-American. She is going to jail for killing her sexual assaulter who forced her into uh, prostitution. And, uh, I mean, is there any doubt that if she were um, an affluent white woman um, and somebody had tried to rape her and she killed him, that she would be facing this kind of time behind bars. Never. No, ever. she would be the, the good guy with a gun. She'd be a good guy with a gun, a good in, woman in, with a in gun. And the proof of why everybody should be armed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what's a great point? Um, so my friend Dana Loesch would be doing segments about her, and the right. NRA would be using her as a poster child. And for some reason, they're not doing that with this woman, which makes no sense to me. No, actually, NRA, good idea, great point. Wayne LaPierre. Put your money where your mouth is. Here you go. Here's a woman that shot someone in self-defense. You should be on the steps of that courthouse protesting about what happened to her on a daily basis. And some crickets, I think. I've heard crickets oh. on that subject. Yep. I, if that happens, I we're going to get drinks immediately because that would be the, a mind you-know-what. Yeah. All right. But, okay, switching gears, well, a little bit. But you mentioned weed. And I saw an article on BuzzFeed, which I thought was real a really interesting proposition for fixing New York's infrastructure with the money from marijuana in the taxes. So what do you think about that? I, th- I thought that's I love a good idea. it. I love it. Um, weed, sports betting, which New York has not yet legalized. Um, New Jersey has across the river. Um, you know, as somebody who rides the subway every day and every time I say that, people who are not in New York um, ask me, why I would do that. And I think the subway is the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> I hate cabs. You know, in New York, the traffic is so awful. It takes forever to get anywhere in a cab or on, on the bus. The subway, when it's working well, gets you where you need to go very quickly. But the subway is deteriorating quite a bit. And the state of New York, not the city of New York, is responsible for the MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, which is severely underfunded. And rather than raising rates on all of us, because right. they keep doing it all the time, Look for other sources of revenue. I would love, love, love a dedicated revenue stream um, from marijuana or sports betting or open up a casino in the Upper West Side or do something. Or, I'm sorry, not in the Upper West Side, but Hudson Yards on the West Side of New York. But there are ways to pay for the subway. I don't know think it would pay for the full freight, but there are ways to do it without constantly forcing riders to pay more and more and more. Right. Because this is, you know, the city is becoming unaffordable for a lot of people. And if you raise, I don't even know, I have a, I have a monthly Metro card. It's really expensive. It's about $3. And, you know, if you think of it, that's okay, to and from somewhere, that's $6. That's just assuming you're going to and from. But, you know, for a lot of people, that's lunch. Yeah. And, again, with, with weed, if you, if you tax it, just the opportunities for that to fix the subways and to let people be, just be more efficient too. I think more money will be made if people are getting to work more efficiently. Sure. sure. You know, it's I mean, a win, win, you win. know, um, you tax weed, I'm hypothetically thinking at 10 or 12% and, um, state sales tax that could be, um, that could be dedicated specifically to, uh, on top of the sales tax that you have in New York already. But 
that could be dedicated to the subways. I mean, suddenly that's real money that starts adding up. And whether it's weed, as I said, or sports betting, um, which the Supreme Court just legalized and, and certain states across the country already are engaging in it, um, there is a tremendous amount of money to be made off of it. And, uh, you know, another idea is the um, sales tax. Now, the Supreme Court also ruled a few months ago that you can, uh, local municipalities and states can charge um, on internet sales taxes, um, an internet sales tax. Um, that's something else to think about. So there's ways to do it, Governor Cuomo. Let's think about it, and not in ways that make poor people in Queens have to pay yet more money to get into the city for their jobs. Agreed. Um, all right, so what's making you salty this week? Oh, God, so much. I know. There's, <laughs> it, it's it's there, a very long, it's a Santa-like All right, here's what's, here is what's making me salty. The party of law and order, my friends on the other side of the aisle who have been consistently talking about how they are the party of law and order. And here you have um, not just Michael Cohen, the president's former fixer, um, but also um, AMI, uh, the National Enquirer guys, David Pecker and, and other executives, basically saying that, yes, Donald Trump was in the room when discussions were made about paying off Stormy Daniels um, and uh, others uh, in exchange for their silence, um, the catch and kill stories, National Enquirer, in exchange for their silence um, about their affairs with Trump. And the fact that, yes, this was not to protect Melania Trump um, and her feelings, but it was done because it was right before the campaign, the election, and they were worried how it was going to affect the election. So I've heard a bunch of nonsense in response to this. Nonsense number one is, no, of course it was done to protect Melania's feelings. Well, the interesting thing is that this affair had happened within days. Um, affair is a really... When did the Inquirer fa- uh, care about feelings? Well, not only that, that's right. But more importantly, the Trump somehow authorized this because he was more worried. Not He wasn't worried about the campaign. He was worried about Melania, which would not make it a, a felony um, or a campaign finance violation. So first and foremost, this affair is a very strong way to put this. This fling happened um, within days of months of, of, of Barron Trump being born. So it happened over a decade ago. And for a decade, he didn't really care about his wife's feelings, right? Suddenly, <laughs> within a month of the election, we're supposed to believe that he really cares about Melania Trump's feelings. So, um, and that's why he wanted to kill the story. So let's debunk that myth. Um, the second part of this is, of course, that you know this happens all the time, and how many people violate campaign finance. You know, my favorite is Rudy Giuliani. He's like, well, nobody got murdered. Nobody Actually, Rudy Giuliani is the epitome of what's making me salty because Rudy Giuliani, Mayor Squeegee, the man that used to literally arrest squeegee men who try to clean your windshield um, in New York City, suddenly is like, well, nobody got killed. Nobody got murdered. Nobody got raped. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I don't think a squeegee guy cleaning my windshield without my permission was going to rape or murder me either. He would pick those people up and throw them in jail. The whole broken windows theory of, of his administration was if you don't go after the guys that break the windows, you're never going to get the guys that commit murder. So uh, former prosecutor Rudy Giuliani, former mayor Rudy Giuliani, never met a low-level crime that he didn't love. And by the way, this isn't a low-level crime. This is a legit issue. And again, I, I work in politics. Um, you don't. You don't do this. You just don't do this because that's why we have campaign finance laws. That's why we have the very toothless but still existent Federal Election Commission to ensure that we don't do this. And you know, for those that are comparing this to Barack Obama not disclosing, 
he didn't, those were, those were routine campaign violations and he paid a very hefty fine for it, but it was not done to commit a felony. It wasn't done to hide uh, something that would have materially affected his campaign. And nobody's made that accusation. Um, and for those that are saying, well, John Edwards got away with this, John Edwards didn't get away with anything. John Edwards, most of the jury was hung on most of the counts with John Edwards, but specifically, they didn't have a witness to back up the allegation that John Edwards paid this woman um, for electoral purposes. In fact, it sounds to me like he paid her because he was trying to support this baby that he was trying to keep under wraps, not for any electoral purposes. In this case, this was done purely for electoral purposes. He wasn't doing this to support Stormy Daniels and their unborn child. They didn't have a child. Um, he wasn't doing this to help poor Stormy Daniels out because he would have done that a decade ago if he felt sorry for her. He was doing this for one reason and one reason only. She was threatening to go public, and he did not want that to affect his election. So that's what's making me salty. Rudy Giuliani, just go. I mean, just turn in your bar card. Just go. Enough. I mean, you know, some these guys don't know when to leave the stage, and, and Rudy Giuliani, he's just... Had he just left it alone, his legacy would have been a noun, a verb, and 9-11, um, and we all would have known him as America's mayor, but instead he's embarrassing himself daily and, and more importantly, undermining his own record on law and order that he worked his entire career to build up. Yep. There you go. That's what's making me salty. All right. So what's making me salty this week are Florida legislatures who are legislators who are failing to enact Amendment 4, which automatically restores voting rights for everyone except those convicted of murder or sex crimes. And the amendment passed completely overwhelmed overwhelmingly with 65% of the vote. And now lawmakers in Florida's capital are saying that they need direction to pass it, and they're hesitating. Well, that's not the point of an amendment that was voted on by the state. It's to get around the legislature. So pass it. It's, it was passed overwhelmingly. And in, in, in the people up in, you know, in Tallahassee are just, we need more direction. No, you got the direction. Florida the people spoke. Florida, Florida makes you salty every single week. It does. It does. <laughs> Florida's like the bane I, of I your, thought, your home state. I know. I just, every time, because I feel like I'm, I can't defend it anymore. I'm just like, the weather's great. I'm off to Florida next weekend, actually, for seven magical days. We'll both be there. And yes. our next, our next uh, segment for what's making you salty, I guess, may come from Florida. It probably will, because Florida, actually, every time I'm there, it makes me salty. I, I don't appreciate Florida the way other people do, and it turns out I have to go there for work in January as well, and every time I do that, everybody thinks how lucky I am, and all I keep thinking is, mm, no, I just want to go back to New York. Every time I do come back into the city, though, I'm, if, it's, a, if it's a great feeling. It really is, I have to say. Every time that plane lands and you see the New York City skyline, um, I actually get a little little flutter in my heart. I know. Ultimately, either you're a New York girl or you're not. And what was that Carrie Bradshaw thing about Sex in the City that she said the fifth lady in Sex in the City, or Sarah Jessica Parker said this, the fifth lady in the city was, was New York City um, because she had such a love affair with the city, and so do I, and so do you. I know. I guess that that's our, that's our guest today. New that's York true. City. New York City. <laughs> New York City, which hopefully will legalize pot and whatever else they need to do. And fix the subways. And fix the subways, because enough already. Come on, it's New York City. How is pot not legal here? And it's, you know, legal in Colorado. It's crazy. Crazy train. Anyway. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next week. All right.